This episode of the Coin World Podcast is sponsored by Amos Advantage. Looking to see your collection in greater detail? Check out the wide selection of Carson magnifying products and microscopes available at amosadvantage.com. Count on Carson to bring you truly innovative, high-quality optics at extraordinary value. And count on Amos Advantage for all your coin collecting supply needs. Visit amosadvantage.com to explore our inventory. Would you like to sponsor the Coin World Podcast? If so, contact your Coin World sales representative or email Brian Hertel at B-H-E-R-T-E-L at AmosMedia.com. The email is in the show notes as well. Affordable rates and multi-episode discounts are available. Contact us today to sponsor the Coin World Podcast. Welcome to the Coin World Podcast with your host, Jeff Stark. As I've said from day one of this show, this is a big tent hobby. There's a lot of room for folks. And Larry Jewett. And learning has been such a tremendous amount of this journey. The Coin World Podcast. Welcome back to the Coin World Podcast. I'm Jeff Stark. And I'm Larry Jewett. And this week, we're going to talk about one of the most exciting developments in the hobby uh, so far this year. And uh, it's really a a game changer. It's really big news. Of course, talking about the fact that the 1933 gold double eagle, $20 gold coin face value, is coming back up for auction. And we now know who owns that coin, at least until uh, mid-June when the coin comes up to sale at Sotheby's. And then as it turns out, we found a lot of great stuff. Some of it was serendipitous. Uh, We've got a lot of great stuff to talk about related to the 33. Uh, We're going to throw our prognostications uh, about that. And, of course, uh, talk about a few other things that aren't ultra rarity related either, just like we do every week. Well, so on the subject of not ultra rarity, I want to thank the listeners for uh, being part of this here. And also thanks our sponsor, Amos Advantage, for taking care of it. You know, this particular subject we're talking about, if you'd asked me a month ago if you thought we'd ever be talking about this, I don't think I would have said yes, because I really expected this to stay out of the limelight, out of the spotlight. But, you know, as we get into this a little more, of course, uh, we're talking about the rarity of this item, but also some of the philatelic items that are uh, connected with that auction, too, were kind of interesting as well. But they have their own podcast. We have ours. We'll focus on the coin. So the big news happened just a week or two ago when the New York Times had the story that Stuart Weitzman is the owner of this, and you referenced a couple uh, stamp rarities. I think the, there's a magenta something. I, you know, I, I've written about stamps. I've, you know, I can't tell you. Uh, the, the rarities are the extreme rarities. We're here to talk about coins. The 33 Double Eagle, of course, most storied coin, I think, in U.S. history because of the surreptitious way some got out of the mint, the ensuing chase by the Secret Service to acquire all of them back from folks who had obtained them, the government says illegally, and uh, certainly there's been a court ruling to support that. Uh, Many collectors disagree or believe there was still a window of opportunity that um, could have allowed this coin to slip out a certain small number. One, of course, was allowed to be exported to Egypt, where King Farouk was a famous collector, and uh, he had, I won't say discriminating taste in getting the 33, but 
his tastes were wide ranging, everything from the most common of gold U.S. coins to the rarest. But famously, the government let that one out. It's just phenomenal to think that here we are. It was uh, almost 19 years, 18 and a half years, somewhere in there, that it sold at Sotheby's to an unknown individual. And now we know who it is. Of course, it was on exhibit in New York for several years. There was a lot of speculation as to who might own it. I know some people even said that they thought maybe Alan Greenspan was the owner. That's that's a rumor I've heard. And of course, obviously, it turns out not to be true. Well, of course, and whenever you have a rumor like that, and whenever you involve names that are well-known or expected to be a part of something, I think we're going to have to go through that again when we uh, actually have the sale here. You know, you try to think back to all the uh, whys and wherefores of the scenario as to why the government allowed uh, King Farouk to get this particular specimen while they were being very protective. I thought that maybe the government wasn't thinking that they would ever have to deal with this again, as uh, you know, the idea was it was going to go somewhere, it was going to stay somewhere, and you know that was just the case. But that truly wasn't the case. It ended up coming back to these shores, and that created a whole other set of problems. So the anonymity of the owner, the uh, actual provenance of it when it was back in the beginning, all added and they weave this tapestry of the story that the latest chapter is going to be opening up in the month of June. And as you talk about people that were rumored to be connected with it, now the thought becomes who would be the ones that would be interested in obtaining it and how? Yeah, well, there's certainly, um, you know, anybody who's going after this is uh, well-heeled. The coin sold for just north of the seven million, right, back in 2002. Even though since then we've learned that there were 10 other examples out there, since the government now has those, we're talking about the Langward specimens, uh, but since the government has those and, and, you know, seems unlikely to let them slip into the public domain, that's a concern that really no longer applies. There was talk in the market as that case was being adjudicated, and it took several years for that saga to play out and the family to be rebuffed, and they appealed, and so on and so forth. CoinWorld covered it all. And in fact, Steve Roach, who is just an editor-at-large now, uh, at the time, he covered the 2011 trial, and we had daily updates. It was It was remarkable to see that coverage and the scope of that as it unfolded. Yeah, just imagining going back there and rereading some of the coverage that we had on this situation. And it was just so unusual in a lot of the proceedings that were going on that it warranted, uh, you know, immediate attention. Just like the uh, announcement that the coin was coming back up. I mean, that's a drop everything type thing where oh, you yeah. want to find out as much as you can as quickly as you can. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, for those who don't know, the, we do the podcast, but we're talking about the magazine now. You know, we're, we're a weekly, and our publication cycle is such that we wrap an issue up about Thursday afternoon, Friday morning at the latest. If something were to happen Thursday night and cause us to, like, just pull apart our front page, you know, there's not many things where we would go, okay, yeah, this is big enough you know, sometimes we say, we'll just put it online and we'll put the story in next week. Uh, the 33 double eagle, I would say, you know, if the mint caught on fire, I don't know. You know, I always joke, that's my example. Well, if the mint caught on fire, then, then of course, my story is going to get bumped. But um, 
You better hope that the mint doesn't catch on fire because you've just made yourself a suspect. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, um, I'm. I know that you're supposed to, you know, speak speak it in and and will it to being. I'm not trying to do that. I just, uh, you know, it, it's just one of those things that there's, you know, there's not many things of magnitude that could really move the needle enough for us to say, okay, we got to scramble and pivot and redo this, rethink our approach, but the 33 double Eagle coming up would be one of those. I think thankfully the news cycle, it happened early enough so that we didn't have to, you know, throw away a lot of work and reconfigure things, but it is, you know, the top story of the issue and it's going to be the top story. I think uh, one of the top stories this year, if not the top story, now the question comes down to, like you say, who's going to buy it. And then of course, everybody's, you know, the parlor game is what's it going to sell for. Yeah, I've seen anywhere from like when it did sell for seven point five nine million, um, just back in two thousand two. So I said, okay, let's go ahead and take that number, seven point five nine million, and let's find out what a dollar was worth in the year two thousand two compared to the dollar that we have in twenty twenty one, and the difference it becomes a dollar forty six. So then, by multiplying seven point five nine million. By a dollar forty-six, I came up with the figure of eleven million eighty-one thousand four hundred dollars. A dollar today buys approximately sixty-eight point four nine percent of what a dollar in two thousand two bought. Now, I'm not advocating somebody try to buy seventy percent of this coin. However, the number coming up over the ten million dollar mark is significant because that's probably going to be the spot where bidding in many cases begins to really intensify. I wouldn't be surprised if they don't even entertain anything under 10. Yeah, we saw how, uh, what was the rarity, the uh, 1794 silver dollar that believed to be the first coin. There was, there was some issues surrounding its sale and a minimum bid and, you know, it didn't, uh, it didn't meet the reserve and all that. I think one wonders how this situation will play out. We have both seen a lot of guesses as to what this will sell for. You're saying mathematically, just based on inflation, the pure value of the cost of the coin in 2001 compared, or 2002 rather, compared to today, 19 years later, that's um, 14 million, did you say? 11. 11. Million. 11. 11. And the, the, you know, that's not an exact science for a lot of reasons. Oh, sure. we're, we're not taking into account emotion. We're not taking into account, I mean, the ID, the owner in 2002 remained anonymous for a good time, about 19 years. That may not be the case of the intended buyer here. There may be someone well-heeled. If you're listening to our podcast, we'd appreciate sponsorship help. But there may be somebody who's got, uh, you know, in the upper reaches that wants to obtain it, wants to be known to be obtaining it. There could be more than one entity involved here. Uh, you don't remember how it all played out in 2002. Was it just one guy putting a number up there uh, through his agent? How's it going to play out here? And, you know, here again is how bad do you want it? You know, the old race car saying is how fast do you want to go is how much do you want to spend? And that can hold true here. How badly do you want to own it? How much do you want to spend? And so it's going to be the subject of conjecture from now until when it goes on sale in June. And we're going to see what that final price is. But suffice to say, I mean, I think 11 is low. And that's just, that's based only on gut. It's not based on anything, no insider knowledge. 
I don't run in the uh, He-Man Millionaires Club or anything like that. <laughs> so it's just the idea that to have a treasure like this, just what would that mean to wake up every day and be able to look at something like that? You talk about trophy wife. Wow. This is a trophy coin for sure. I, uh, yep. you're, you're not even in the He-Man Woman Haters Club of that the either. Little Rascals. Nope. But <laughs> I can't help but think it's got to be north of $15 million. This is the ultimate trophy coin. When is it going to come up for sale again? There's so many factors, like you say, and my favorite number is 17 because that was the jersey number worn by St. Louis Cardinals' Dizzy Dean. And I, when I was growing up, I read all about Dean and loved his, you know, I've never was alive to see him broadcast baseball games or certainly play in them because he, he was in the Gas House game, 30, 1934 and all that. But I just, that came to be my number. So I th I'm throwing out the number, 17 million. Is that before the juice, after the juice, whatever, you know, it uh, doesn't matter. The juice for those uninitiated is, uh, that's the buyer's premium, which I haven't even looked to see what the auction house is charging on that but i would think as a consigner uh, mr weitzman ought to get a very very nice deal from Sotheby's, considering he bought the 33 in their auction 19 years ago and uh, he's bringing it back to them he could have went to a different firm and um you know this is all the you know the business side the the politics side of you know the firms jockeying for consignments and all that. He could have taken it elsewhere and shopped it around. We don't know, obviously. I don't run in those circles. I don't run in any circles. I don't run, period, unless yeah, something, some, something's chasing me. That's exactly it. Well, <laughs> you know, and speaking of running, I mean, let's just go back to this baseball reference just for the heck of it. I looked it up and Dizzy Dean had a record of 20 and 18 in the uh, year 1933. He appeared in 48 games and it doesn't show much about, oh yeah, he did... Uh, he did have a decent batting average, but nothing to really write home about. Well, he was so a pitcher. Hero, I know he was a pitcher, and back then pitchers hit like they still do. But I think he, he finished seventh in the MVP award that year, so they wouldn't have given him a, a gold 20. No, but, well, in 34, uh, he and his brother Paul led the Cardinals to the World Series. Uh -huh. He promised that me and Paul are going to win 30 games, I think it was, and they went out and won – 39 or 49? Yeah, because he won 30 of them on his own. Yeah, so. yeah. Uh, anyway, you know, and, and he was the one who said, it ain't bragging if you can do it. And uh, in one of the World Series, I believe it was, no, it wasn't World Series, uh, in 35 or 36, a couple years later, uh, he got hit while running the bases, and he altered his arm style because of that, his throwing style. And that messed him up, and he ended up bouncing around, went to the Cubs, of, of all four-letter words to, to mention. And uh, so his career was cut short by injury because of that. But, you know, he's in the Hall of Fame. Really, he's one of those rare birds that, no pun intended, that between the broadcast booth and the playing field was, you know, was a standout. So anyway, enough, okay, well, no, enough I'm chatter ask you, for this. Yeah, <laughs> I'm going to ask you one more question because it is baseball time here. It is. Well, who was the only American League team you played for? The only American League team. Yeah, see if you know so much about that here. So. Oh, my gosh. It's been so long since I read those books. <laughs> I know, I know. I know not, this is unfair. I mean, at least you give me a chance to, to – so let, let, give me a hint or something. Because I mean, it, was it Milwaukee? 
No, you can only go home again, you know? Okay. Well, so he's from Arkansas. So that wasn't it. Home plate, home Arkansas, um, American League. He wasn't in Texas. Nope. No. Um, I don't know. I mean, I you know, that hint wasn't enough for me. So I'm, okay, I'm yeah. throwing my hands in the air. The St. Louis Browns. Oh, that's right. Came back home to roost with the, or this time with the Browns and the American League. So that is uh, your primer on Dizzy Dean. <laughs> We're going to go back now. So 17 and, uh, million. Uh, so that's how I get to 17 million. What's your number? Do you want to my, throw it out? My number, I mean, I, I got to agree with you. It's going to be higher than 15. And I just got really start getting in concern when we get in rarefied air. But it's interesting that here we had a shoe designer who we never even expected to be somebody that, you know, he had next to no other entities that we knew of. Turns out he had a lot of philatelic interest, but it could be any of the corporate giants. I can imagine what would have happened had they been back around the digital bubble where all these, uh, all the money was made available that like Mark Cuban made his money doing that type of stuff. And then went on with the uh, Dallas Mavericks. Just imagine if the money had been free for the Facebook guys and Apple guys and will Bill Gates buy this coin? And, you know, what about Warren Buffett? What's he going to suggest on something like this? I think your 17 is in the ballpark. Get back to that Pun reference intended. once again. But uh, I think maybe just a touch high, just a bit outside. Um, high and outside. There you go. That's going to be it. It's going to be 16-2. Okay. So you, you bring up a good point, though, as to, you know, who's going to buy this? Because Weitzman, I think, I mean, at least to me, hearing his name in, in context of this rarity, I go, well, that's a dark horse to me. I mean, we know that Del Loy Hansen is out there, has built uh, fantastic collections through the auspices of David Lawrence Rare Coins and John Brush. I mean, he's, I believe, a multimillionaire. And it's going to be somebody like that. Could, could it be somebody like that who has an interest in numismatics and knows what the value and the meaning of this particular coin is in the broader context, or is it somebody who goes, gosh, unique art pieces sell for hundreds of millions of dollars or tens of millions of dollars. And this thing is undervalued when you consider it and its story. And, you know, the, I mean, part of the allure of the Mona Lisa now is the story, the fact that it was stolen and recovered. And it's, I mean, you know, there's things that, that become embedded in our, national conscious in our, you know, the, the landscape. And, and the 33 double eagle is one of those because of that. I mean, you make the New York times that as a rarity, that means something. They're not just going to be talking about a condition rarity or a, you know, top pop, this and that and the other. I mean, it's because of the broader meaning and it could very well be something, somebody that has no interest maybe in numismatics per se, but loves the value of owning something unique, you know, that uh, how much is it worth to own the only one that can be owned publicly? Could it be the Tyrant Collection? Uh, Chris and I interviewed uh, Ira Goldberg about the Tyrant Collection and the Tyrant who's building the collection, if you will. And, uh, you know, could it be somebody like there was the, um, the big coins that sold at Heritage a few months ago for a couple, you know, million dollars a piece above and that buyer had never, the Brasher balloons, that's what it was. That buyer had not bought coins before. So could it be that person? Could it be 
you know, a Russian oligarch is a, you know, a Chinese billionaire, Carlos Slim in Mexico, one of these other, you know, industrial magnates. Only time will tell, and right now it ain't talking, which is why we're doing all the talking. But I, I wonder what the listeners out there think. I wish there were a way we could have a, a little poll or, you know, well, ask let's, people. Let's work on that. Maybe we can come up with something before the sale date. But, you know, when you brought, we were been talking mostly about domestic buyers, and you brought the idea that someone from outside this country could be interested in it as well. We all know that King Farouk had to get an export license to take it mm -hmm. out of the country. Would mm -hmm. an individual who is not a resident of the United States have to do the same thing? I don't think so. I mean, I, you know, I think because it's legal to own now, that, that issue has been adjudicated. There might be tax implications. There might be other things, you know, you might have to claim customs. I don't, you know, I don't know. I've, again, I don't swim in those ponds, but you know, somebody who has the financing to afford this coin can have the best experts give he or she whatever advice is necessary to, you know, reach that conclusion before, yeah. before moving forward on it. Yes, it easily becomes in the category of not my problem. So, you know, let's uh, for them to work out, for them to think out. But it is a bigger world out there. And this this coin does have, because of its previous ownership with the Farouk, then it does have some, some attraction. Yeah. A legend. Now, a legend, know, the, yeah. The, there is, this is billed as the Farouk coin. And I believe it is, but there's enough in the storyline that there it might not be but you don't like today you can put a chip in something and track it or whatever uh we don't have that from back in the day and the fruit coin the collection itself the catalog for it the the 33 double eagle was just lumped in with a bunch of sundry common coins there weren't plates you know images that's what the in the books plates there weren't plates of this coin in the catalog, and it was pulled before the sale happened. I believe this was 1954, and uh, John Pittman was one of the famous Americans to have traveled to uh, attend the, the auction, curiously, interestingly. But that's the story as, you know, I, I think, is it beyond a reasonable doubt? That it's the fruit coin, no, but is it mo more than likely? Yeah, I think so. But there's, you know, there there's a lot of room for what ifs and we don't knows in this story, as you know, anybody who's followed it uh, surely knows. No doubt about that. But it's going to be interesting. We'll see what developments happen between now and that sale, because here again, go back to one of the earlier statements, never thought we'd be around for something like that to happen. And it was a big surprise, a pleasant surprise, nonetheless, but it's, it's just going to make it uh, a little more interesting. This is not the last you've heard of it, and it won't be the last you hear of it on this podcast. Absolutely not. Well, yeah, not even today. Exactly. <laughs> as, as you'll find out. I mean, it was interesting. I looked at This Week in Numismatic History, and I went to the source that I always go to. We have a, the week that was was a column that ran for two or three years. And um, <laughs> it's funny enough, uh, wouldn't you know there was a related item in This Week in History? We go back to March 24th, 1944. 
We're in the middle of World War II. What was happening numismatically, though? Well, on March 24th, 1944, that was the day the Secret Service confiscated dealer Max Berenstein's 1933 St. Gun Gold $20 Double Eagle. So this story permeates all of numismatics today, in the past, in the present, in the future. You know, it'll, it will have legs to come. And again, funny enough, then, you know, I wanted to look at, okay, this week in coin world history, we went to 1996 because that was the year that the coin was confiscated from Steve Fenton and by Secret Service agents. And this started the process, multi-year process, uh, that would eventually lead to the auction in 2002 in New York. Well, we go to the issue that week, the March 25th, 1996 issue. And what's the big news in the issue except the two-word headline, it's genuine, subhead, federal experts examine $33.20. And Paul Jokes had this story, one of the best, shortest leads you could ever have on a story, it's genuine. And then goes to talk about it. This coin was seized February 8th by undercover Secret Service agents who were offered the coin for $1.5 million. Story goes on to relate how government numismatic experts authenticated it as one of those genuine struck pieces. So this was true serendipity all the way around. Next thing you're going to tell me is that somebody wrote a letter about this. Well, I can't tell you that. Uh, okay. <laughs> no, I can't. But I, I did want to point out, because I did talk a little bit earlier about philatelic things, mm-hmm. one of the letters actually makes some comparison here. It says, wow, did Frank J. Collette in the February 26th Coin World editorial really miss the mark? He wrote that he is tired of hearing or reading about collectors crying about the proliferation of modern commemorative coins, and that before 1982 collectors complained there were none. If he would have carefully read about it, he would have realized collectors really enjoy commemoratives. It's the price gouging they're complaining about. So we agree that our government should issue as many commemoratives as they're able to, but why should collectors always pay and pay and pay? What we really want are circulating commemoratives like the ones we had in 1976 I find it very surprising the writer of the letter did not understand the real reason collectors were complaining about the commemoratives. I hope that he reads the letter, he'll at least understand why. I also hope, too, that someone could help me understand why the Postal Service can issue face value circulating commemorative stamps while coin collectors have to pay and pay and pay for their commemoratives. Maybe we can find out. That was from Bob Olickson out of Cleveland, Ohio. And he found out because there was an editor's note that followed along that said, basic reasons that commemorative coins and commemorative stamp programs differ so greatly. The Secretary of the Treasury and the Postmaster General have different levels of independent authority, and the revenue goals of the two programs are different. The Postmaster General has full authority to select commemorative stamp subjects, usually based on recommendations from the Citizen Stamp Advisory Committee, and needs no congressional approval for those decisions. The Secretary of Treasury, however, must follow congressional orders in issuing commemorative coins. Congress controls coinage matters, not the administrative branch of the government. So there you have it. If you ever wondered what was the difference, it's because of that. 
One other letter that was interesting because it was an idea that would encourage continued participation and growth in the hobby. It was under the headline of inviting, speaking of short headlines. As a result of reading many fine ideas about how to generate more interest in numismatics, the Albany Numismatics Society of New York launched a membership drive where new members are handed a check for $4 off their application to the American Numismatic Association. This will apply to junior memberships, which are usually $11 back then, as well as regular and senior memberships. The invitation from the Albany Club reads, We invite you to join the Albany Numismatic Society without having to pay dues, which are normally $3 then, for your first year as a membership. At your first meeting that you attend, you'll receive a check from the Albany Numismatic Society worth $4 off your membership application to the American Numismatic Association. And it talks a little bit about the club and gives the information that you can uh, find out more information and uh, not relevant now, uh, 26 years later, 25 years later. So that's the way that falls. It was really neat to see that somebody had an idea that was implemented, whether it's still in, in, in place or not, don't really know. Just the idea, it was really neat to see somebody being proactive about it. We talk a lot about trying to get more folks involved into the hobby, trying to get them interested in coinage and, and currency in general. And it's good to see that clubs are taking it upon themselves to do something along that line. I'm sure there are many other fine initiatives out there, but this one happened to be on the letters page for that issue. Awesome. Lots to think about what clubs might could do today even to um, foster interest and expand the hobby. You know, because the hobby is, there's only one 1933 double legal out there and it's going to sell for millions of dollars. But the hobby is everything from picking up uh, world coins with your birth year to building a set of one ounce silver bullion from around the world to any manner of things. So there's something in here for everybody. We'll beat that drum till they rip the microphone from my cold, dead hands. But it's why it's the, the hobby of kings and the king of hobbies. Well, you know, it goes back to one of the old television commercials we used to hear all the time. Try it, you'll like it. You know, try it, you'll like it. And I think, obviously, we're preaching to the choir a little bit here because we're on the Coin World podcast. But the idea is to let people know about how much fun it can be. How much, you know, the, the common question you're going to get is, What's it worth? Well, that's not the only reason to do something like this. And maybe we're belying that by talking about the 33. But still, the idea is we're still having fun uh, going to car washes, putting $5 in there in search of that ever elusive Florida state quarter. But, uh, you know, yeah. it just is part of it. I mean, just a, a recent purchase of a grab bag going through the bins where you have the coins. Just don't worry about the condition. Just like you like the design. That's great. We saw a New Zealand coin recently, and the wife loved it. So that's all that matters. She yeah. gets a good feeling out of it just by looking at it. She doesn't care if it's worth uh, $7.59 million or $0.16. Cents. Yeah, I would say the value proposition is something you're always, you know, with which we're always going to contend. But you can marry the two, as I did. I went to a recent shop last week, and um, they had a coin marked $3.00 from an Asian country. I'd never seen this coin. It's copper nickel, about the size of a U.S. quarter. And I go, okay, you know, let me get it. And he's like, oh, give me two bucks. You know, it's it's a junk world coin, quote unquote. You know, they don't care. And I get to looking online and I go, 
this is tough to find. Like I'd never seen it before. And I think, you know, for my internal collection value, I think it's worth 11 bucks. Now, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to retire on that, but you know, it, it goes in my collection. It's, you know, it's 11 bucks and, and I got it for a couple and it's, it's got a ship on it and it's just how neat is it? And I was able to find it. You know, there's a lot of world coins that when you look through a lot of world coins, you see them over and over again. It's always nice to find one that you haven't seen. Mm-hmm. And, you know, anybody can afford a two or $3 coin at that level. I want to drive home that point. You know, there, one of our listeners, Ron, is a local guy, and I've, I've met him and talked to him at coin clubs and things. And he's looking to get into the world coins and trying to find a, you know, get, get his footing, I guess uh, you would say. And you kind of just have to spend a little while immersed in it and survey the landscape before you can chart a path through it, you know, see what's out there, you know, and certainly we, if we can help guide you, you know, send us questions, but there's no end to the fun, the learning. I mean, back when I watched TV, I I'd watch Jeopardy and I go, Oh, that's on a coin. That's on a coin. And I'd know the answer because I've written about it or read about it in relation to numismatics, which is kind of scary, like, you know, some church in Slovenia or whatever, you know, and it's just, you know, a Swiss railway. And yeah, I I know that because of the coins. And, And if you're a lifelong learner, if you're somebody who appreciates that history, then there's nothing better. Nothing. I like to learn. So, and the way I like to learn is by having people ask me questions. Now, I I stuck you with the Dizzy Dean stuff. But, uh, you know, I don't mind if you want to turn around and throw one on me right about now because I'm ready to learn. So, you know, very good. That It's time for the trivia question. And, you know, last week in honor of St. Patrick's Day, I asked about, about there's an Irish coin that has Ireland issues coins as part of a series honoring literary figures. One of the coins has a quote wrong. That's right. I know how we got into this because I was talking about Yates, who was involved in the design selection process for the Irish coinage, that first series. Yates is part of this series, this modern series of commemoratives. There's a different person in that series who was honored but the, they got the quote wrong, so I wanted to know what was what was the coin, who was the author. Do you have any idea whatsoever who that might be? Well, as a matter of fact, I do. Because recently, over the weekend, spent some time down among some of my coin friends. And one of them, he loves the Isles. He loves the UK. Okay. And so I said, just out of curiosity, I said, uh, you know... I heard that there's this coin, and I'm not sure much about it. It, uh, it involves some literary figures and misquoted. And he looks at me and goes, you mean you never heard of the 10 euro from James Joyce? <laughs> I guess now I have. So yeah, I hope he's right. I mean, he's a friend, so I hope he's right. I haven't looked it up or anything. But he says it's the 10. He didn't couldn't tell me what year. But he said it's a 10 euro coin and James Joyce, they misquoted Ulysses and I didn't ask him what they did, but he, good enough, we move on. So you, that's my answer. <laughs> you are correct. Uh, although no, he is correct. Yeah, he is correct, sure. <laughs> it, it, was, uh, it was 2013 and it featured a quote from his groundbreaking novel, Ulysses. 
but it includes an extra that in the uh, second sentence of the quote. So, but the the bank went ahead and sold them all. You know, said anybody who bought one could return it, but you know, and get a refund. But why would you when you know it could be you know rare and it's. I mean, you know, the, even if it's not worth more than what you paid for it now because of that story, it has a neat story behind it. Just like I may have mentioned at the time. The BBASIL, the Brazil coin with two Bs, the UNICEF coin from Egypt. You know, there's there's several coins like that that have errors in the design process. It's just fun to have something with a story like that. And that's a great pocket piece, if you will, even if you want to put it in a two by two or a you know, some sort of plastic capsule and you just tell somebody, hey, look at this. Do you see anything wrong? And see if mm-hmm. see if they notice or and then get to talking about, you know. Do you ever look at your coins? Do you ever see some things? Hey, look at the Wisconsin state quarter and look for the high leaf and low, low leaf varieties. And, you know, the, just using as conversation starters and discussion prompts, prompts for discussion is a way to take it. So now that you've, uh, he has answered you the question correctly, I'll ask you a question for this week. And I'm guessing you're not going to be able to ask your Irish friend because this is about the 1933 double eagle, although you never know. I wanted to know what was the original mintage. Now, we know you know there's one at the Smithsonian. There's one that's alleged to be the fruit specimen that is coming up for sale. So there's two out there in that exist plus the 10, I believe it was, that were turned over. The Langbord family had 10 that got turned over to the government. So there's not many out there in existence, but how many were struck? We thought until the trial that the striking began, like it coincided with uh, FDR's inauguration on March 4 and was quickly stopped when he enacted the gold reserve ban and all that. Roger Burdett, somebody we've had on the podcast here, was called to testify for that trial and actually found records indicating that production began on March 2nd, which was two days before the inauguration date at the time. So, you know, we know when production began and we know roughly when it ended, that window of opportunity, allegedly, that these coins could have been traded. That's that's the theory, although it's been, again, it's been denied legally, uh, even though there are folks in the hobby who think, you know, there's always miscarriages of justice and, and things were you know, people uh, get away with, quote unquote, something, they're adjudicated uh, fine of it. And people still believe that, well, they were guilty. I mean, you know, we think about OJ Simpson or whatever, just like an umpire, though, the umpire calls the ball a strike, it's a strike, whether, you know, I mean, that's just how the systems are set up. So set aside whether that's legal or not, but how many were made. And obviously, we know almost all of these got melted down. So you have till next week to come up with that answer. Okay. All right. There's going to be some hope that we can come through with that one because it does date back almost 80 years ago, uh, 90 years ago now. So, hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'll take on the challenge here. The phone of friend has already been used. So yeah. we'll have to result to other lifelines and pull the audience or something <laughs> along that way. So these game show references that we continue to have here. But I think it's an exciting time right now, no matter whether you can plan to be one of the bidders or whether you can just plot along with your collection that you have here. And just like, you know, over the weekend, I mean, 
part of the fun I have with this, and maybe I'm just the quirky collector, but I just, there's a bag of a hundred coins there assorted. And it's just like, give me that. I may get one of them out of there that falls in what I'm looking for, but I just have fun just looking at them, thinking about them, trying to imagine what the country was going through back in the day, because most of them were world coins. And, you know, just the idea that this just opens doors and they never know when an opportunity is going to arise to tell a story like that. I mean, the James Joyce story, it was interesting to me that somebody knew that. And, you know, the idea that that's what we're doing here. We try to educate, we try to inform, we try to build up, we try to, you know, help each other, lift each other up and let each other obtain whatever goals you have with your collection. That's our objective. Well, at least mine anyway. I don't know about you. I can't speak for you. Try not to speak for you. You know, you sum it up pretty good though. I mean, that's, we're walking side by side in this journey. We're not, you know, we're not up on a pedestal and we're not pushing you. We don't want to push you either. Uh, We want to be side by side with this hand in hand, if you will, although you can't really touch now, (laughs) but you know, this idea that, you know, we're all walking each other home. We're all, we're all heading in the same direction. This is supposed to be fun. And, uh, you know, gosh, I sure have fun doing it. And I have fun doing this. You know, the, you talk about buying a random bag of coins. I did that yesterday at a coin shop and pulled out a bunch of cool things. One, you know, a Croatian coin with a bear on it and whatever. And just, you know, there's lots of fun to be had. We certainly have fun doing this. We thank you if you've uh, listened all this time to this point in the show. And If you've been listening to the show from the beginning, great. If you just started, great. There's lots of stuff to go back and listen if you'd like. Uh, We certainly ask you to subscribe, get the podcast on whatever platform you choose. Then uh, thanks to you listening and Amos Advantage on the other side of it, then we can be here every week doing what we're doing. And until then, happy collecting. Thank you for listening to the Coin World Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next week. Would you like to sponsor the Coin World Podcast? If so, contact your Coin World sales representative or email Brian Hertel at B H E R T E L at AmosMedia.com. The email is in the show notes as well. Affordable rates and multi episode discounts are available. Contact us today to sponsor the Coin World Podcast.